Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, Oliver, this is our our fourth chat, and uh, I think for this initial series and conversation, we're going to try to close out today, um, and maybe just go in a conversational direction, see where things kind of run. But it seemed to me that if we're if we're going to close out, then how better to extend that than kind of jumping back to the beginning? And so, as I was reading Chasing the Light, which is you know out now at time of recording, uh, you've been on Joe Rogan. There's been just reviews all over the place. Uh, I was struck. I think by a lot of things in the book. Um, of course, Platoon was where I started with your work. And so, you know, Elias and Barnes, I, I thought I knew where that came from. And then I and it was clear that it was the sergeants that you met in Vietnam, but it was also Greek mythology, but it was your parents, it seemed to some degree, which maybe I should have noticed from the monologues of Charlie Sheen. So you know, he talks at the end about being, or you speak at the end about being born of two fathers. You know, you miss your grandmother very much and you write to her and you're tired of your parents' world or, or Charlie Sheen's character is, Chris is, uh, also in a letter to the grandmother. So I was just hoping you can kind of talk a little bit about, you know, the, the influences of the, the parental roles and then also, you know, grandparents were appropriate. Yeah, not just in that story, but just kind of in your overall development, like life and, and artistically, because one of the chapters is, you know, child of divorce. And as I read that, you know, as a child of divorce, I said, this is interesting. Uh, the chapter of child of divorce, child of divorce. It, it, you know, it was important enough for a title. And, and I sort of lived that life a little bit. And uh, it really jumped at me. So I was hoping to talk a little more about that. Well, the, uh, the, the divorce happened when I was 15, 16 years old. Uh, it was very sudden. It was abrupt and volatile. Uh, rather, my, both, both both parents were accusing. Uh, well, my the basics of it was my father was very upset. My mother had a lover, who I, in fact was uh, somebody who I was a friend to me. It was like a surrogate father. I was so naive, so naive when I was that age. And apparently, this has been going on for a year or two. And she was in love with him, and. My father had failed uh, to uh, to provide uh, uh, that. Uh, my father had failed to ignite that. My, my mother loved my father, but was in love with this guy. So there was a there was a communication gap between my father and my mother. And on the other hand, when I found out later, is that he himself had been. Uh, having affairs since 19, uh, since, uh, ever since he was married, since uh, from 46 on. He had affair. In those days, it was, for me, it was shocking, but not so much if you think about American society was changing in the 40s, 50s. Sex was a big issue. If you go back at that period, you'll read the novelists, 
it was take, it was, divorce was happening in America. It was picking up the numbers, on, especially in places like New York City. I don't know if we knew a couple that was happily married. I think everyone got a divorce or two. And so, but it was still not acceptable in the, the overall morality of the nation. And to, be, to have your parents divorce was shameful. And uh, in my school, where I was in boarding school, it was, I was embarrassed by it. Uh, I think there was a split in my nature because they never belonged together. And I, I write about that in the book. But if they hadn't gotten together in Paris or after the war, I don't think I'd exist. So I wouldn't be around. So there's this, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mistaken product, so to speak. And you become insecure, I suppose, because you're not sure what reality is. You know, what's the reality? What are people hiding? What's behind the faces and the smiles and the love? And I questioned everything. Uh, and because it was a small family, there was no brothers or sisters. They, all, they both went off in different directions. He moved from a comfortable townhouse into a hotel apartment. And she moved to Paris uh, because she was in rough shape at that point and i was embarrassed i thought that it was she, i th at the beginning i thought it was really her fault for the divorce so there was this mistrust of, of my mother for years it took a few years more and i really didn't belong. i didn't want to be in new york i didn't want to be anywhere in that system in east coast i wanted to get away from it all and that's what drove me away i became i burned out at yale and couldn't go on and i ended up uh, teaching in the middle in the in the far east and the merchant marine and traveling came back wrote a book book was rejected went back to college tried to make it but i was getting i couldn't get going there i wanted to finish the book and the book was rejected by publishers and basically i was finished uh, i didn't know what i could do in the world or society i didn't know have a place and I, my mother really wasn't in my life at that point. So I, I, and my father wasn't really doing it for me. He was, he wanted me just to go to back to college and become a businessman. So I, what can you do? I went, I joined the army because that's where all people go when they have nothing else to do. Uh, and I took my chances. I said, I, I was a fatalist about it. Listen, if I have no purpose in life, maybe this war will clarify it for me. Uh, I was quite resigned. I wasn't complaining. I was quite resigned to, I was quite resigned to, to facing my, my destiny. You know, I believed in destiny, in like the Greek heroes in, my, in mythology. And, uh, you know, the gods uh, would have taken care, took care of me in the sense that, I describe a battle, for example, the human wave attack, and I talk about a Greek goddess. And if you read Homer, the, the gods have favorites on Earth, so they come down, they wrap them in a mist in the middle of the battle, and it's always fascinating to me that you can't touch that person. Then he he comes to the battle on skates. Well, it's ironic that I'm in this human wave attack. We kill about 400 of them, and they kill about. 25 of us and 150 wounded. That's a pretty significant night. And it's all, it's an all night action. Fireworks every, all night long. And nothing touched me. I got, I got concussed. I got hit by a beehive round, which is pretty serious, but nothing. I wasn't wounded. It wasn't a flesh wound. I was concussed and I got through that night. It was bizarre. Uh, it was very bizarre. 
So whatever the reasons, I made it out. I got wounded twice, but I made it, I made it through. Uh, and I, got, I became a better soldier, too. In fact, I, I always took my chances. I extended my stay in the field three months in order to get out of the army sooner on the state side. So I, I went 15 months in the jungle, which was, uh, I had confidence. <laughs> you know, I had confidence in myself. As you know, you kind of soldier, you get better at it. You get better at it. But, uh, and they were a tough enemy. They were very good. They were very good. I mean, they were fighting a beast. We had so much artillery, so much uh, firepower, even land power. We had so much. I can't believe they went up against us like they did. They kept doing it. They kept doing it. And then, of course, they, when the, when the America had, when the generals kept saying we're beating them, we're beating them, and counting, counting the VC, the the bodies, the dead, the, the KIA count, they couldn't believe it when they showed up in mass for the Tet Tet Tet, tet uh, the Tet. What do you call it? The Tet offensive, yeah, offensive, yeah, Tet offensive in January of '68, and uh, then there was another one in April of '68. Anyway, I. I got through all this. I didn't realize it was how bad it was. I didn't understand the amount of damage we were doing. I didn't, the poison, the or, Agent Orange. We walked right through Agent Orange, you know. I had no problem. And we walked through napalm forests, you know. All that. It was beautiful in a way. It's weird. There was a, a great deal of beauty in the war, too, you know. And I, I was young, and I don't think I realized all the consequences of everything. Yeah, you were older, I think, when you were in the, you were an officer. Uh, yeah, by the time I graduated, I was like 22, yeah. Well, I was too then, I guess you were more mature. I just didn't want any responsibility. I didn't, they offered to make me, you know, they said, you want to go up to sergeant, you've been around. I, no, I didn't want to be, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be responsible, because that gets you killed too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't volunteer for any responsibility or any duty. Oh, that's the army way. Don't volunteer yeah. for nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. Keep quiet. Uh, and of course, I go. I told you last time about the bullying effect. There's a lot of bullying in the military, mm -hmm. and and I was talking about sergeants driving me nuts. Uh, first sergeants, especially, but all the sergeants. The sergeants were in control of what I saw, and they ran the units. And the first sergeants were, were monsters. Some of them, they were really, and a lot of them were veterans of World War II and Korea. But they were, they were smart enough not to go into the field. They knew that they'd get the bonuses, they get the combat pay, and all that if they go out once in a while on an easy mission. But don't go in the hard stuff. So there was a lot of gamesmanship, a lot of back background activity. I mean, in terms of back in the bases, the PX system was a racket. It was a racket, and they proved that after the war. The, the sergeants, I mean, people were selling automobiles and <laughs> televisions out of the PX to the Vietnamese, to, and the Vietnamese were selling it. Our collaborators were selling it to the, to, sometimes to the NVA. Some of the, our weapons would show up there. It was so crazy, wasteful of war. And uh, came back. Anyway, where was the question? I'm sorry. Yeah, so, um, you know, when, when you sort of talk about Elias and... Um, you know, and Barnes as the mother and father, I was wondering how, was it at the time, you know, we're in Vietnam, were you seeing the, 
the influence of your father and mother on these sides of you or these sergeants, or did it really come after no, that recognition? Exactly. Not, exactly. You know, when I started to think about my experience there seven, eight years later, when I addressed myself to Platoon in 76, 1976, that I talk about this bicentennial going down to the ferry there and seeing oh that all did you see when you see those fireworks were you there in 76 i was not no i i, I was oh. not born until you, <laughs> I'm, almost, I'm about the same age as your son uh sean i so. see i see uh i decided uh, i had been a screen i'd been writing screening plays i hadn't had success but i i said i want to shape the story but war is so diffuse and so boring some of it and it, it's hard to just put details into one solid solid action-packed tense drama it takes skill mm -hmm. and thinking about how to do it i and thinking about the odyssey and the the, uh, the not the odyssey yeah the odyssey no the iliad rather the iliad homer's story of that war I, I did see similarities. Uh, they, the Greeks the, were stuck on the beaches for so long that they couldn't ever get in. You know, they they had to use tricks at the end. But uh, the whole idea of having a conflict uh, between soldiers on this on one side of it appealed to me. Uh, Agamemnon has a big fight with Achilles all through the Iliad. That's the basis of the uh, the wrath of Achilles is the basis. And I saw Achilles as being this sergeant I had. He was just an ordinary man. I, but I never, I rethought him. He'd been very mysterious. He'd been badly wounded. He was a real warrior. And Elias was also sort of another type. He reminded me of Hector in the noble in the sense that uh, he'd been in, he'd been there. It was a second tour, I believe. He was a squad sergeant and he was good, man. He was damn good. He liked on his feet. He, he was, but it was a different unit, a different purpose. They were long range recon patrol and Barnes was infantry. Both were very good. And I said, well, I said, if these two men were in the same unit, one, one unit of platoon, it would be a world unto itself. And I could bring in this concept of war crimes, what we were doing to the civilians over there and friendly fire. These were two big issues with me, friendly fire and uh, war crimes. I mean, civilian, killing civilians. So I made killing civilians kind of the focal point because in the middle of the film, they go to a village and Barnes loses it, kills a Vietnamese woman. And that's a crime. Not a, I mean, we, it didn't happen like that, but we, there were killings that were, went on. So I, I focused on that and it comes down to basically a friendly fire. I mean, at the end, it's not really about fighting the Vietnamese, except at the very end. It's just about Barnes going after Elias because he's threatened by Elias. Elias, if, if Elias's charges are in any way substantiated, which they will be, his career is, as a soldier, but they're both lifetime lifers in my opinion, his career is finished, uh, finished in every way. So Elias is a real threat to Barnes and friendly fire again, you know, the concept that we killed a lot of each other without sometimes accident by accident, mostly by accident, but certainly there was some antagonism between enlisted and officers and uh, sometimes sergeants. 
and there were fraggings in the and there was probably far more fraggings that are admitted to by the Pentagon. But it became an issue in the Pentagon. They uh, actually acknowledged in '71 that we, that the army was on the verge of mutiny. Okay. They, they compared it to the French mutinies of 1917. Right, uh, and I believe there were eight, like 89 fatalities just between 1970 and '71 in several hundred fragging incidents of officers. Several hundred. I don't know where the figures, uh, what, but I'm, all their figures are wrong, whatever, because they've been lying. I'm sure it's low, yeah. They're lying through their teeth. I mean, I say in the book, I say, you know, they, I don't know what the official numbers are on friendly fire. Maybe they have it down to 5%. It wasn't 5%. It was closer to 15 to 20%, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because it's such a mess that war. I mean, the, the firepower was so intense on the American side, so intense that. Nobody knew what was going on. I mean, there was chaos. I, I saw the same thing in an Afghanistan documentary. There are soldiers coming up on a village. Some s- stupid sniper opens up, okay? One shot, two shots. These guys go nuts in the patrol. They go nuts. They're screaming on the radio, blah, 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 blah. They're shooting, blah, blah, blah. They don't know where they're shooting. They're not... And it takes time for them to calm down and fucking listen. That has always been the problem. I saw it all the time. I saw it all the time. Uh, it's to be a fight in the jungle. You have to be skillful. You have to listen. You have, there is an enemy. He's firing, but you got to figure out where he is or, and what's going on first. So sometimes we walk right into an ambush, uh, and it was the reaction was typical. They knew what we were going to do. We were going to retreat, pull back, call in artillery. And and if they also knew it would go out, it'd be better to wound the first guy, make sure that the uh, American guys would go get the wounded guy back or try to, then they could get a couple more. You see, they were not stupid. They knew where the lieutenants were. They 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 they, and they often go for the radio operator too. But I just it was chaotic. Our reactions were generally chaotic. And out of that, I talk about an incident where I got the bronze star. Again, it's overplayed, but it was a, a potential disaster because that was their objective, to get people between us in platoons. And that would have worked. It would have been worse if I had not done what I did. Yeah. He wasn't the only guy between us, by the way. There was other. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a pattern. and I just don't know why we don't learn. There's so much noise on the American side. It's too much talking. There was a scene in the very beginning of Platoon where Elias helps, uh, you know, helps out Chris to take stuff off of his gear. He's got too many books. He's got too many towels. And one of the things that's striking is instead of taking the lesson from Vietnam about being more like Elias, right, being more nimble and quick and light, of course, the army has gone completely in the other direction. We carry, now we all wear these flak vests and, and, and as well as other gear. We've really increased the basic load, right? The unit basic load to 70, 90 pounds. That's the minimum, right? And so, you know, we're, we're even louder than we were before. TV sets too. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, all kinds of, yeah. And we got to put a McDonald's and a Starbucks on every base, of course. You know, I, I wanted that. Uh, what was interesting to me, and maybe it's because you hone in when you read these books and on some of your own experience, but, you know, my father didn't serve in the military at all. Uh, and and we, we have a pretty strained relationship. Uh, my anti-war and sort of progressive activism is pretty upsetting to him. Uh, I think he thinks I'm sort of, 
you know, less than patriotic, despite having spent all that time in the army. Your father was in the military, but I think you say in the book that he, he wasn't really involved in direct combat. No, he and, was in the financial affairs on Eisenhower's, right. Eisenhower's group, Shafe, it was called. Did, how was your, Seven. did you guys share your veteran experience or was there like a positive connection or did, or was there sort of tension based on the no. fact that you were a combat infantryman and he was not? No, I, he wasn't that interested. And I never talked to him about the details that much. Frankly, it's funny. It's, you know, it's, why wouldn't you be more interested? He thought the war was a mess. But as I, he wrote in the book, uh, you know, he thought there was a reason for the war that we would, America was going to learn from this experience. But we had to fight communism because it was a worldwide conspiracy. So it was, although people were dying in a messy war, he justified it. That changed. Of course, he had a wild man at home. <laughs> And we had a, a few arguments about just establish, the establishment and the way I behaved. I was, he thought I was a black man when I came home because I was talking army talk and often using black phrases. Cool. <laughs> cool was a word back then that was really used a lot. And he couldn't stand that. And uh, man, calling a man. And all that. Right. Uh, but eventually, when he was older, about 19... 79 in that area he said yeah what the what the hell is it all about you know why are we doing why are we I mean, there's no reason to build up like this because he, a russian sub off of long island can nuke the whole place anyway you know we don't there is no zero sum game about this it's not about territory the enemy has what you the so-called enemy has what you has the capacity to destroy you and that's it. We both do. It's a mutually assured destruction. And he changed. He changed. He saw the waste. Uh, I write about that. I write about his concept of capitalism, which got distorted in the 1980s because he believed, you know, and, he, and, he, and I believe, you know, you earn, a man has to earn his way, uh, a meritocracy, so to speak. He, be, he believed in the system capitalism worked as long as it did not get out of control, which it did. So everything that happened on Wall Street in the 80s would have disgusted him. Right. He died in 80, 85, 84. Yeah, he died and early did, 85, I'm sorry. And you did Wall Street essentially, you know, right after Platoon. Um, and I think that's, that, that's kind of an interesting choice. I mean, I think I can see a connection and it's not really covered... Uh, in the book, based on where you sort of stop, you talk about the, the casting, but I'm interested in that linkage, you know, so you, you, you've done platoon, you're on top of the, you know, the world with, with professionally, and then, you know, obviously Wall Street is, is the, it's going to be hot because of the topic, but it's an interesting choice to, to, to link over to that, and I imagine you must have seen a connection or a reason for that. No, it was not hot because of the, it became hot. We made the film. Uh, it was my first studio budget film, and it was, I was excited, I was proud, uh, we had more money to work with. We were shooting in New York City. It was amazing. I mean, it was a dream come true. It was a real film. <laughs> it was not made guerrilla style. So, and uh, it was, but um, business films were not popular. There was no business films back then. It was, who cared about, you know, the business of America is business is what Calvin Coolidge said. Well, who cared? It wasn't really done. There was a 19 executive suite was a great film, but that is about the 1950s. Wonderful film. And there was a Capra film with, with Walter Houston. I love 
American, uh, I, I forgot the name now, but uh, it's a beautiful film with Walter Houston, 1932, beautifully done. It's about a banker during the Depression in which the businessman's a good guy. Mm. So over the course of time, the businessmen started to be regarded as bad guys in the film business. Boy, you know, they had no heart, blah, blah, blah. So my, my version, I wanted to do Wall Street the way my father, the world I, I saw. And also I was meeting all the new guys, as I told you, coming up from uh, doing research on cocaine in Miami. I, I, when I ended up in New York, I was seeing the same thing. I've seen huge amounts of not cocaine, but money being made, huge amounts by young people, which shocked me. In my father's day, you never talked about wealth. You never talked about how much money you made. You never celebrated that. It was, greed was disgusting. <laughs> and uh, when I saw the kids at 29 years old making millions of dollars every year and boasting about it, that, that really hit me. And I uh, tried to document that, that excess uh, with Charlie Sheen's character. They were, the geckos were always around, but they had never been in such abundance as in that period of time. And uh, the whole idea of taking over a company to trash it, to make money, is a disgusting idea. It's obscene, but it was doable. You could actually soak a sock. I mean, you could take a company and strip it of its, all its assets, make a bundle and get out. Uh, whereas opposed my father's idea of, of Wall Street was we're an engine for wealth. We're an engine for creation. You, out of Wall Street, you can R&D. You can create companies. You can help companies, America, thrive. Always very patriotic. And that was the idea, but it got lost somewhere along the way. Right. You know, it struck me as you were saying that, and I don't know if someone has already made this analogy for you or you've thought of it yourself, but, you know, Martin Luther King's triplets of evil speech, you know, when he turns against Vietnam, everyone always remembers the racism part, but forgets the militarism and the excessive materialism. And it kind of struck me that, you know, between 86 and 87 in these films, you kind of, you definitely do the militarism bit a little bit in Platoon or discuss that side. And also the racism, because there's a big racial component and the influence of the black soldiers. But I wonder if anyone's ever thought through the idea of, you know, Wall Street comes next and really highlights that excessive materialism that King is diagnosing, you know, 20 years before. It seems like they are. I, I didn't see it in those terms, but I do. I see it now. I see it now. I, I didn't start with the idea that Wall Street was bad. Mm -hmm. So the idea like I like the mood, the atmosphere. I want to try to explain to the audience what business is about. And there was, that's why there was a character of Martin Sheen and Hal Holbrook to explain that there's a reason for Wall Street, my father's reasons. That got lost. Right. So then, you know, because, uh, and then after that, you sort of, well, over the course of time, you complete, you know, the, the trilogy, right? Sort of the Vietnam trilogy. And one of the things that has struck me about, not just Platoon, not just the trilogy, but any of the films you've done that touch on the military in any way, even if it's Salvador, uh, what strikes me is that you don't, you choose not to, and I, and I like it, uh, not over-agilate or lionize soldiers in and of themselves. You know, it, you complicate them as characters, and if you do laud some aspect of them, it's, it's their humanity, or it's just their positive aspects in general. It's not because they wear the green suit, they're a superhero, and that has changed, right? There's a degree of like, you know, there can be a patronizing and sanitizing effect on veterans. And it seems that throughout your career, anytime you touched on it, you went for the raw, the reality and the deeper human emotion. 
was, you know, was that on purpose or was that just something that you felt and kind of came out in your work? Well, I, I try to think of myself as a dramatist. I mean, a dramatist has to deal with characters who, who are human beings. And the people I met in the army, they're a mixed bag like everywhere else. They, there's some very bad guys and they're bullies and cowards. And I had combined the concept of a bully and a coward in the guy called O'Neill in the picture yes. by John McGinley. That was what I found a lot of. And I found uh, quiet heroism. I found good leaders, good men, but sometimes a good leader in the pursuit of his goal becomes obsessed like Barnes and goes too far. So war crimes are not far from the surface here. Uh, not far from the surface at all, uh, which is a question of excess, you know, excess. And that that is a real problem in the American military. They don't have enough to do. They go to a war, they're completely overstocked, like the police are over-equipped. They go into a city. There's nothing really that requires all that equipment. So they become, in their heads, they go looking. They go looking for the perpetrators, the enemy. And I find that happens in all human life. It's, you know, there's that, I really believe in Afghanistan. You served there, but someone years ago, I read a piece and I think it was an observer, a a reporter said, you know, when they moved into Afghanistan, there was no, they were gone. The the Al-Qaeda had gone, the Taliban had basically split too with all the bombing that was going on. And at one point, Right shortly after, in 2000, sometime in 2000, was it four, somewhere in there, there was no enemy in Afghanistan. Right. And the, but the soldiers kept going out in their uniforms and their equipment, scaring people in the villages and rousing, breaking the Muslim rules, knocking on houses and, and invading private space, which shocked the people. And, uh, you know, the women being uh, searched and stuff like that. There was all kinds of violations of the customs of the country. And I... And that's when the Taliban came, started to creep back. So in other words, we won that fucking whatever it was, war, and that's when you leave. Yeah, and we've never been very good at, at cutting our losses and going on top or at that point. No. It strikes me in Afghanistan that, you know, first we complained, Rumsfeld and these guys complained that there weren't enough targets to bomb, right? There wasn't enough infrastructure yeah. to bomb. And then when there wasn't enough Taliban to fight, we sort of created the enemy that the military industrial complex needed. What struck me about what you said there, how you sort of create the next generation. I remember in Baghdad, one of the things that we would do, and you will recognize this sort of supply side officer and NCO uh, mandates was searching for weapons, you know, searching for weapons caches. And so they would tell us, you have to search this many apartments in Baghdad a day, but In the process, of course, you never find the weapons because they don't hide them in their apartments, really. They're not. <laughs> but, you know, you have to report. I searched 400 units today, you know, and then they were like, oh, you're a good lieutenant. You know, you did your job well. But I remember the looks on children's faces. Sometimes they would cry. Sometimes they would they look bad inside from seeing so many raids into their homes. And sometimes they would glare at you. And I'm 23 years old, and I remember I, I can't forget some of these faces, and I can think and say, that, that's the next, we just created, you know, the next, you know, anti-American, 
probably if we're still here, those kids are probably fighting, you know, the remnants of the American forces today. It's fascinating and terrible. We did the same thing. We went into villages looking for weapons and was, sometimes you find them, but they had no choice. Sometimes they had to stop them, but they were not against us until we started fucking with them and we would. And because we'd find a weapon, we'd trash things. And uh, that, that hostile glare is what some of those Vietnamese were very proud uh, and that's why I almost killed a guy once. I, he was giving me such a hostile glare that I started to take it out on him. And that's kind of manifested in the firing at the feet yeah. in, uh, in the film, right? The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone, whom you like, might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military, or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities, and inflicts on minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment, pause the episode, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So, let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I, I, I wanted to jump in with one, one thing here real quick, Oliver. Um, are you familiar with a book called Platoon Bravo Company, written by uh, Robert Hemphill? Okay, I, I got to tell you about this. So, Robert Hemphill was my uh, captain, wasn't he? Yeah, yep. yeah, I had him in my 25th Infantry, I believe. He, following Platoon, he wrote this book. I think it came out in like 88 or 89. 
that essentially went through the narrative that you created for the film right. and said none of it happened. You know, that, that Oliver wrote this thing and it did not happen. And Oliver talked about this lieutenant and, you know, and, and he just goes through it going back and forth like it's it's it, someone has just written a patrol report this isn't a film this isn't something that deals yeah. with themes and emotions and tries to demonstrate points of view that aren't aren't always obvious it just that back and forth and it it, it really stuck with me because it, there are people that hear those kind of things and then they immediately shut down you know they find one person that agrees with whatever their divergent view happens to be but in making the film you were going for something much bigger yeah. and it just just the, the minimization that that this that he went through and i don't i don't know what kind of uh relationship you might have had with him as a soldier but yeah what a fucking wasted skin i'm sorry i gotta say yeah, that i didn't know he wrote a book but uh, yeah he contacted me with letters and stuff uh he was a captain I had never talked to him in the field at once. I mean, I may have seen him three, four times, I don't know, in the bush. As I remember, he was a very competent captain. He's a company captain. Uh, but he's a, he was a straight arrow. I mean, he can't see beyond, he's very literal. First yeah. of all, platoon is based on, I was in three different combat units, 25th and two in the, two in the first cavalry, uh, Lerps and uh, first of the ninth. So it was, I melded the character. He probably didn't understand that. But certainly all the actions I've seen, those kind of actions, uh, I don't know if it was in the first cab or the 25th, but I, he was very literal. I remember he was the guy who called me and said, I never called in artillery on our, uh, our on our, on, uh, called in a, a plane or artillery on our positions. Well, I didn't say that in the, in the movie. It came awfully close, though. When they and th that was for sure at that all night battle. It, it is interesting how some people will take things completely literally and then expect that to be manifested in film, missing the idea that it's it is a broader it is a broader theme and it's also a conglomeration of experience from three units. People will sort of personalize it, and one thing I've noted is. Uh, if you watch some people who get involved, even not in art so much, but in any sort of like dissent or anti-war behavior who are veterans, one of the first things that's attempted by their detractors is to like find soldiers that serve with them who maybe didn't like them or don't agree or, or any of those things. And it's a fascinating way to dismiss or reject work. And, and I think it's, it's really dangerous for art in particular. Yeah, they were, yeah it happened to me. Just ignore them. Yeah. I, I told you that story. I think Mike Medved, this guy. Conservative show, yeah. I was uh, some. Yeah, I'm not sure that you have. I was on a radio show, Seattle somewhere. Medved was a very conservative, uh, known as a conservative movie critic, or, and he had a radio show. And he had me on the show. It was a setup. I didn't realize it. He had. He brought on a sergeant. Uh, I remember his name, Hildebrandt. And he came on and basically saying I was a shit soldier, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, I remembered Hildebrand because I still think he's the guy who fragged me by accident. <laughs> hit me. I think that I was hit by a grenade thrown by our own guy behind me in that first night ambush that I got hit in. And I, I'm, I don't know why. I just think it was him. It's just because he was a f fat fucking three-striper. 
fat, you know, and he was no good. He was something rotten about him. He was the corrupt kind of guy. He has a face of a corrupt guy. And I, and I remembered him, I, and he came out, and I didn't remember him until afterward. He said, Sergeant Hildebrand served with uh, Stone and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I didn't, you don't make the connection right away. It was after the show. But what a setup. It happened. <laughs> also, there was an attempt to discredit me as a soldier. My name was not that name on the records or whatever. I was not Oliver Stone there. I was William Stone. Right. You know, do, do you follow, I mean, I imagine on some level you do, some of the more post-9-11 uh, war films or war-related films, uh, the depictions of the, you know, post-9-11 wars in cinema. No, I follow, I, I, I like those films. I mean, I like action films, but yeah. I, find, I find that it's all overdone, you know. This, this, this fancy shooting, this blah, 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 a lot of fireworks, a lot of vigorous action, but very little of it is true. It's generally, combat is very clipped, very dangerous, uh, and out of control and loud, you know, it's, it's, but you, then you see Jamie Foxx plunging here, killing three guys. And, you know, it's just wonderfully done choreography, but it has nothing to do with war. And, and that's what really has, like, I get pretty upset watching these films. And then I wonder, oh, is it just because I, you know, it, it bothers me because of my own experience and my being obtuse. But, you know, I was thinking about some of these movies, the better ones, like in terms of uh, box office success, special effects. You think of Lone Survivor, or Twelve Strong, American Sniper, or even Black, The Hurt Locker. Black Hawk Down. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about these films, yeah, Black Hawk Down, of course, was was such a big film that they showed it to my entire freshman class at West Point in an auditorium. I mean, I don't know. And then they had the sergeant that was in the main character come in and speak to us. I mean, they melded it that way. Yeah. But I think what strikes me about those films, and I was wondering if, and it sounds like you sort of agree, but maybe a bit more on it is, they are completely absent uh, politics, of course, or historical context, but they're also kind of absent the uh, complexities of, you know, the human condition. And so what they do is they drill it down to really two things, it seems, which I think is paltry and also dangerous. They say, okay, here's this great action sequence, fun to watch. And then to the extent that they have a theme, it seems like it's always the same theme, which is that cliche of, oh, you fight and die for your brothers, not for the flag. It's all about brotherhood. Now, that may be true sometimes in the moment and in some cases, but to me, that, that really is a dangerous nihilism almost. Like, it doesn't matter what the war is because, well, you fight for your brothers, and that's it. That's the only theme. Well, it goes to the, to the root. Of, I think you're onto something. It goes to the mythology of American warfare. Hello? Okay, I need about 20 minutes. It goes to the, the mythology of American warfare. And uh, probably you've heard this before, but... Uh, I mean, you saw Black Hawk Down. Everybody's on the mission. Everybody is devoted and willing to die. And 25 black people have to die for every white guy that gets killed in the movie. That's outrageous. It was outrageous because it was probably a fucked up mission. And I, you know what fucked up missions, mm -hmm. like Lone Survivor. I really believe that was, they took, it was very fast and they took him out. And, uh, and the guy, you know, kind of, whoever spun that story out, but it wasn't, the, the soldiers did not die like that. <laughs> very hard to kill, right? Sometimes people are easier to kill. You can get hit by one. So I think the mythology that I see of that bothers me is that heroism. I mean, brotherhood stuff. 
the Brotherhood stuff. I mean, the army I was in, we were interchangeable. It was draft replacement troops too. We, it, a unit very rarely had a cohesion. It was constantly moving around. And Barnes disappears one day. I don't even remember. You know, he just was no longer there. You don't think about some of these things. You know, we we don't really become a platoon in that sense. Uh, and when this when it happens, which it does, and it ambushes all the time, or your first guy gets hit, your second guy, these guys always the guys who are nuts feel that they got to drag the guy back. And they go back out there and they get shot and then he's wounded. And then you get another guy who goes out to try to help that guy. And they turns into a, a, a real ring-a-ding fuck up. And before you know it, you got three, four guys that are wounded and you haven't helped anybody. You haven't helped anybody. If anything, you're just going out there and making more wounded people. So you got to clean up the action. I mean, the action, you got to deal with the enemy who's firing when and what. And if the guy is out there and he's wounded, he's got to stay there. You're not going to go out there and get shot too. It doesn't help the situation. And that's a mythology you see again and again. And I'm sure some people, because they saw too many movies, do it. Well, and that's the policy, though, of of the military, right? And Henry knows this as well. I mean, the the policy Uh, of the military is you leave no one behind now, including bodies, dead bodies. So it is the stated policy that you will go, you will put soldiers at risk in order to retrieve a body. And it's supposed to increase morale in some way that you know that your dead body will be taken. That never ah, gave me shit. comfort at all. That always made me feel horrible. No, leave me. Don't get killed on my behalf. I'm dead. Yeah. Uh, I think you're, you mentioned Pat Tillman the other day. That sounded like a real fuck up. Uh, real Absolutely. fuck up. And, and of course, of course it was. And yet, when they make, you know, and, and they have done Pat Dillman documentaries that are that are really solid that or that question the narrative. But in bo- in movies like Black Hawk Down, which is like lauded, I mean, it, it it was so popular and it's well done. But the thing that's striking hey, is Bush saw it. Bush saw it. Bush saw it several times before he went to Iraq. Right. So it had an influence the same way that Patton had an influence on Nixon. Right. And then now again on Trump before he bombed Cambodia. I'm sorry. Black Hawk Down made made me into a soldier. That was the movie that did it for me. I had watched you tons see? of them up to that point, but it it somehow crystallized in my mind the themes of heroism, brotherhood, all all of it. Just and it wow. just sang to me. Not anymore, but but when I was a young, a young man, yeah. Wow, sad to hear. And I'm sure that you're not alone in that, Henry. I mean, that was such a for our generation in particular because it came out in what 2000 2001 the timing was almost awful it's a key film in this uh, mental process of american mythology so do you think that the reason directors or the you know how you know producers don't make or pick up movies that complicate warfare after 20 years of imperial wars do you think i mean is there someone on that want to make money yeah it's money uh, I mean, really, Scott's a very good director, but you, you can't forgive him for that film. He doesn't care. I mean, he's a commercial director. Mm-hmm. He, he he cares about the frame, the picture, the look, <laughs> not the fucking content. And and I mean, that, that's... I mean, he took the Roman Empire and he completely perverted what the gladiator story, and it worked for him. I mean, it worked as a movie, certainly, but was it reality? No. And it's so, it seems to me that, and I, and I imagine as someone who does 
you know, film as art, you know, in all its manifestations, it strikes me as almost obscene and sort of insulting because look, look at what Henry said about the effect of Black Hawk Down. There's, there's a dangerous side to commercializing and commodifying war. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And it's been going on for 20 years in America. And uh, whatever I say about it, you know, it doesn't make a difference because, as you say, they've been lauded. Which, uh, which Henry, that kind of goes to um, Tom Secker, one of our recurring guests, what, what, what he had kind of uh, brought up the other day, if you want to raise that. It's very interesting. Sure. Um, yeah, Tom Secker is a, is a friend of mine, and he's a frequent guest on our podcast. He, um, he studies movies and sends FOIA requests for the DOD lia uh, Entertainment Liaison Office. And so he, he's really amazing at tearing apart, you know, what was happening, why did the DOD want this or want that, if they've left any evidence to be seen. So he was curious about, in our day and age, and this goes right with the, with the war film thing, the, the, how do you see opportunities for aspiring radical filmmakers within what is our media landscape now? I, I, I can already feel your answer a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to let, let, let you jump in there. I don't think you can, I don't see how you can work with a Just You have to do, make do with the equipment you have. That's what we did on three films about Vietnam. We had no help. And as, as you know, there was a report. Yeah, I wish your friend could find, uh, I never, I can't find the document. I had a, a ridiculous letter from them when I submitted Platoon for, for in fact, the the Defense Department put out a notice in Philippines when we were there advising the soldiers, American soldiers, not to cooperate as extras in the film. Huh. That's, you know, that's funny. I, we're going to put that on our list, Henry, because it, Tom could potentially find that document about Platoon, and then we'd have something to share with you. Yeah, I'd like to find it. No, I, I'd like to share one little note about uh, do, doing these reviews with Tom that I've learned about the DOD's process. And these days they have become so nitpicky on the smallest little things, you know, use of profane language, which, you know, is a part of being a soldier or a sailor. You know, it just was what it's the language we speak in, but DOD will have a field day about somebody saying, you know, what, whatever buzzword they want to go after at that moment. But it's other things like that too. It's they're never upset that, how this soldier was portrayed killing all these civilians, they're wondering about, is his haircut right? Or, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and there's no story. It's all just pieces of, of crap woven together. Like my, my, like my Westmoreland story in the book. And it's, it's, it also raises that point that we talked about previously, Oliver, about um, the evangelicals in the military and sort of the influence of yeah, this. Sort that was of very shocking to me. I remember that. Too. So when Tom told us that, hey, they'll get upset, not about the bombings or any of that. They'll get upset if the soldiers are too profane. And, uh, and as he was saying that one time, and as we were talking just now, I thought about uh, Tim O'Brien, the novelist, who was uh, also a, a, an 11 Bravo, you know, infantryman in Vietnam, wrote some great you know, quasi-fiction, quasi-nonfiction stuff. And he, one of the quotes he wrote that always stuck with me is that he says, you can tell a true war story if, if it embarrasses you. If you don't care for obscenity, you don't care for truth. And if you don't care for the truth, watch how you vote. Because if you send guys to war, they come home talking dirty. And, and I thought that was pretty well put. And yet the Pentagon will say, you know, no, no, we have to have morally clean soldiers, you know, committing these killings, right? To killing folks, even if they're the enemy obscenely and sometimes. 
You can imagine their reaction to platoon script, right? Oh, that we have to get that document. Like, that has to become like our, our energy number one. You know, that, that could be the key output of our conversations is finding out what they said about it. Yeah. yeah. But that is, that is really interesting, though, talking about these. Well, they started with the concept of one sergeant killing another. Of course. Right. And of course, that was after we knew about all these fraggings and how you know, prevalent they were. I mean, this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Richard Boyle write about uh, the, the, the early mutinies? Flower of the Dragon, yes. Right. He covered that bit. There was a mutiny at some air, uh, base out there, or forward base, I think. It was, a, yeah, it's it, it, one of mutinies. Mm-hmm. Why would they, why would, soldiers got very surly. They would, I heard, I, they wouldn't, they would, you know, they wouldn't follow orders. The, the army starts to break down. Right. And there's a reason why that seems to be what they fear most, is when the uh, foot soldiers yeah. of empire, you know, let them put the daisies in the barrel, you know, metaphorically. Uh, there's probably a reason why when, you know, they want, you know, you show it very well in, in Salvador and then again in Romero, where when do they, when is the tipping point for Romero's murder? Well, it seems to partly be when the archbishop says, you know, I order you in the name of God, soldiers, don't follow orders to kill your fellow peasants. It's really no accident that it's really right after that. It's a couple of weeks later that he's executed. After three years of saying, you know, re- you know, relatively radical things, it was that seems to have been a tipping point, which is instructive, I think. Who knows? I don't I don't know what, you know, I love that speech. The guy was good. The actor was good. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as we kind of like come to a, a close, there's two things that are on my mind and we can go anywhere with it, but you talked about the documentary project that you went to Paris for before we, you know, started the episode. And uh, so I'm interested in, in that, but uh, you know, to the extent you can talk about it, other projects that are on your horizon, but even more so than that, like cultural or political topics that are just on your mind. Like if, is there other things that are happening that are burning for you to do something well, actually, the, the this, uh, energy, clean energy documentary is very important because I think it's a, it's a dominant issue on this earth. It's how do we save civilization? Really, it comes down to that. I do believe that the uh, International Panel on Climate Control is, uh, is, 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 is warning us very clearly that by 2050, we have to com- cut our carbon emissions down to zero. It cannot be carbon emissions anymore. Now that seems severe to some people, but it's it's a it's a baseline because the te- the temperature keeps keeps rising, and everything goes with the temperature. Now that's the basis on which we're making this documentary. So think back from 2050 to now, instead of like thinking incrementally from here to there. So if you think back, you've got to have certain goals, and the goals are very clear. And the only way to achieve them. And this is based on the book that I bought, Bright Future, A Bright Future, by Josh Goldstein and his co-writer, the scientist, the Swedish scientist. I don't remember exactly his name. Quist, Quist, Q-U-I-S-T. You can buy the book. You can find it. Uh, we have to massively invest in building up not only renewables, because that will work. Renewables have, can only work a certain percentage of the time. And we don't have the battery or storage space to make it work yet. It will take years, but it might happen. 
But aside from that, nuclear energy has proven to be working in all the countries it's been in. It's really worked. And unless we build up our nuclear energy capacity in a big way, uh, it's the only way to solve this problem. Otherwise, we'll be using methane as a in conjunction with renewables. We'll be using oil again in conjunction with renewables. There's a reason why the, the fossil fuel companies like renewables, and they explain it very clearly. Yeah, coal is no, re- is no reason for it. It has to go, and it has to go now. Coal is a disaster, not only for the climate, but it kills people every year. <laughs> it just puts particulates in the air that kill. So uh, this whole issue of uh, the danger of uh, the safety of uh, nuclear energy, we deal with it head on. I mean, we look at the worst disaster of all at Chernobyl, and we find this is what happened, actually. And it's not so bad what happened. It was a disaster in its design and the way it was built and it was sloppy management. True. But that was the old Soviet Union. We're so much better now. We learn from our mistakes. There was never been a, a meltdown or an explosion like what they, what Ralph Nader said back in the 19s. Never happened. Chernobyl was the worst. And then at Fukushima, that's completely overplayed. That was a big setback. But it, if you look at it closely, zero deaths all the deaths occur from the tsunami it was a natural disaster the the plant failed because it was poorly it was poorly situated but there was no meltdown nobody died in there there was even the, even later when they came the problem was they were evacuating people too fast and a lot of people died from hospitalization they were not in the mood they couldn't move them and they died and then i think 50 people were died at that time, maybe from the earthquake or maybe 1,200, I forgot exactly, but none that we can trace to the nuclear. That's amazing. And yet, on the basis of that accident, France uh, freaked out, started to peel back. Uh, Mm -hmm. Germany canceled all their nuclear and built coal plants. So this is a kind of mess. Three Mile Island, nothing really happened. That was a big deal because it was a movie. All these accidents have taught us every industry has accidents. It's the way that you build an industry. So there's no other solution right now. Uh, sure, we have to keep going with renewables, but they also have problems too. I mean, yeah. you can't just put windmills and, and uh, solar panels everywhere. It's just not going to work. Solar panels are very, very dangerous, toxic when they're thrown away too. I mean, they, they, they do have afterlives. And waste, waste we talk about, it can be contained. What, uh, the whole waste in America is built up over since we put in nuclear can fit into a Walmart. <laughs> it's not that big compared to coal, which would be tons and tons of coal that are the waste from coal. But I, anyway, it's an argument that is worth making because it might help. So that's where it might, that's really where my focus is. On, and you have to focus because I can't be all over the place. Uh, I have to do it now, fast, and I'm working on it now. Yeah. Is there a uh, sort of a, like a planned uh, time and place that you know listeners will be able to well, find? Frankly, there... uh, for that, you need distribution. I'm not there yet. Uh, yeah. First of all, we're cutting it. Uh, we're, we're making it now, and uh, you know I can't tell you for sure. I'm, of course, sure. you never know with this. You know, they want, it's all for entertainment, our business. So they don't necessarily want to put stuff like that out. But I'll get it out somehow. Sure. 
do you expect a, a reaction from the uh, what what's being called the the cancel culture uh, in the society? In other words, if you uh, downplay in their mind or don't hew to the propaganda line on something like Chernobyl, you know, and then they're going to say, well, Oliver Stone did this thing with Putin and Ukraine, and now he's talking about he's he dares say Chernobyl. Uh, I mean, I imagine you expect some reaction. I guess. I can't believe the stupidity of people because, first of all, Chernobyl happened under a communist uh, Soviet bureaucracy. Mr. Putin is not a communist. They still confuse that. They right. they transform Putin into a communist. He's Stalin. I mean, how stupid are they? Beyond stupid. Uh, can I, how can I dignify that reply? And I, and I think... And by the way, Russia is in the forefront of development on nuclear. Forefront. And they're doing some very good work. And if the world were smarter, I, I keep saying the United States would ally with Russia and China and build the shit out of nuclear energy because we have the capacity to do it. But we, it costs way too much in the West now. We can't build anything without a million regulations. So it can't be done unless we change our thinking. It does seem that reason and even... Uh, things that have to happen with urgency, like this climate stuff, uh, you can't say certain things, especially if they involve Russia <laughs> or China, without being dismissed. Well, I mean, a lot of activists—that's true, and I probably will be canceled or whatever. <laughs> but uh, you know, environmental activists very in the '70s have come around to this too. Many of them. And the rest will have to wake up. I mean, we're already using 20%. America's energy, 20% comes from electricity, comes from nuclear. And we closed down a bunch of plants that were ready to go. It's a shame. Right. That was all political. So I'm glad that you, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the urgency of this and your willingness to do a film on the, the issue of the day or what should be the issue of the day. And I think so. potentially the need to work with the other major powers to save the species. Uh, it would go faster if we did. It, it seems almost like a, uh, an eventual requirement. I mean, and, I mean, eventually it seems like you, one would need, when humanity faces an extinction, country boundaries, these imaginary lines in the sand don't seem to matter all that much. I totally agree with you, but, you know, look at this country's stupidity about Putin. They, they have to keep insulting him and talking about, he, he's this, he's that, he's got richest man in the world. Uh, uh, hand in every pocket. I mean, they, it, it's not demonization of a, of a leader is not a policy. So but we've always guess, done that with Russia. We've always done that with Russia. It was, of course. It's just amazing how we're stupid. <laughs> well, you know, you know. The shit I took for it. Uh, I, and you know what? It's funny because it won't really, it may not help, it may not help you in your lifetime, Oliver, but uh, I mean, I think you've already been vindicated on a lot of these things, but when the historians are able to take a look, I think there's going to be a real reframing of our delusions about Russia and, and new Cold War with China. If there is a history to be told. You know. and, and, and that's the, the point, right? So, uh, so as we kind of like come to an end here, and I, I hope we don't end too darkly, but I hope we're honest with ourselves. Like, there's this question of the world as it is. You know, we've, we've touched a lot of topics and how your film and all kinds of artists gotten at it. But this is a, this is a pretty profound moment. You know, and uh, taking the world as it is, it seems that there are some real existential issues that get sometimes lost behind following and reacting to, say, Trump's tweet or the latest cancel culture 
issue. And you're getting through that and saying, no, like clean energy, like we have to do this, even if it's not going to be a big, you know, blockbuster, you know, because people don't want to hear it. And it's documentary, you're willing to do that. And so right before Christmas, I wrote like my, one of my like darkest, but one of my favorite articles. And uh, I called it humanity is riding a, a delusion to extinction. And uh, I, I started it with a picture of a horse and his rider in World War One wearing a gas mask. And I said that horses with gas masks have been on my mind, you know, and it had been. And I talk about how, you know, there were three, these three phases of lunacy uh, that should have made these ideologies irrelevant. So there was the mass murder in the trenches really should have made nationalism sort of, you know, obsolete because a million people die in four months. That's unheard of. And then the nuclear explosion sort of makes like even countries obsolete. We need to work together to make sure there's no nuclear, you know, accident, uh, accidental exchange. And now we have climate and 50% of Americans or 50% of the political party is in a suicide pact on that and other things, including nuclear provocation with Russia and the Baltic. And so, yeah, that's pretty dark, obviously, but to the extent, I mean, where do you put yourself on the spectrum, you know, optimism, hopeful, darkness completely? I mean, that's a broad question, but this, this moment seems like a, a people, I'm sure people are interested to know what you think about. Where the heck are we? What does this mean? Well, it's not important, what I think, because the, the, we are where we are. The scale, I mean, it, it's a very bad moment because everybody's unsure. I mean, the, like the biggest problem is the United States has got an inferiority superiority complex about its status in the world and that it's no longer the sole leading power and it's that's what makes the world even more uncertain because we act like scared bullies uh, and scared bullies are very dangerous uh, it's just we can't have our own way it's a multipolar world we haven't learned that we we, we think we're the center of the, the center of attention we're not I've traveled the world enough to know that. I mean, just an obvious fact is that in the next 20 years, there's going to be every 100 million more people every year come online and need electricity from these Indias, Bangladeshs, China. It's impossible to meet the electrical need. We're going to need five times what we need now for energy because those people have a right to energy. We can't say, oh, because, you know, you're a third world, you can't have energy. It's it's a losing proposition. I mean, I'm not even pro nuclear. I'm pro arithmetic. It's really stupid. And stupidity reigns. Uh, what can I say? It probably always has. I mean, Einstein creates uh, was one of the creators of the uh, the nuclear the nuclear energy theory, which is crucial. He, he in that theory is the the world can be saved. The amount of energy in the in the earth is unbelievable. We have it. We have solutions. And yet, what we do, we build bombs and we kill people. So, I mean, Einstein was at the center of that problem. He saw it. He was, yeah, we use it negatively, right? I think and, yet it's a, and yet, what we fear is what can save us. Yeah. Isn't and that, that, and that, is, that, that, to me, is like a very human nature story, too, even though it's a collective that, that 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 tension between rationality and irrationality inside of us is uh, yeah totally that seems to have got it a lot of your work in general yeah I guess so I hope you're right about the historians <laughs> well uh, 
Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know. Uh, but I think you did, you know, I think you may have, as, as we close out here, I think you may have given me an idea for my next uh, philosophical piece. It'll be something about how uh, there may be, you know, more people who believe in American exceptionalism than science and uh, almost as many people who believe in, you know, angels or the rapture as the arithmetic. Uh, but I won't cite you uh, on that when I get my uh, attackers. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not detain.